I had a natural ability to do things well with analysis and business activity. Made a lot of money, but had no fun. I retired from that after several years and we sold the business. I began to miss interaction with people and real estate and travel agent were the two that we finally narrowed the world down to. It was a flip of a coin. Welcome to Diggs Influencer Podcast, the Titans of Real Estate, the show that provides direct access to the real estate industry's top movers and shakers as they share invaluable insight on how to best navigate and succeed in any market. I'm your host, Warren Dow, founder and CEO of M3 Media and publisher of Diggs Magazine. In this episode, Michael Edlin. Thank you to our show sponsor, Bo Concept. Today's guest has been representing buyers and sellers on the West Side for more than 30 years, has completed over 1,350 successful transactions, and has sold over 1.5 billion in homes. Please welcome to the show, Michael Edlin of Coble Banker International. Welcome, Michael. Thank you, Orrin. It's a pleasure to be here. So I want to just... For our audience's sake, run down some quick statistics just to to put some context into your stature in this industry. You know, obviously this is the influencer podcast and you very much fit that description as one of the top agents in the country. You're ranked in the top 10 of Cobalt Banker Greater LA area agents, also in the top 20 of more than 90,000 Cobalt Banker agents internationally. You've averaged four transactions per month since 1994, which is amazing. Um, your listing sell, you sell 95% of your listings on average, and your average sale price to list price ratio is 97.5%. Quite amazing. Quite an accomplishment. Congratulations. Thank you. So I want to start from the beginning. Tell us your story. Well, I grew up in the San Gabriel Valley in a little town called Alhambra, and I went through high school there, then migrated over to UCLA. I was on campus for six to seven years, received my bachelor's degree in psychology and master's degree in business administration there, and that was my early upbringing. Awesome. So what did you do as a young adult for fun like what 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 interest you was that your you know activities or or how'd you spend your time as a young uh, kid uh, we we meaning me and uh, some neighbors we always did as much work around the neighborhood as we could to raise money so that we could augment our allowances so one of the things we had fun with, I enjoyed, was mowing lawns. Yeah, I did too. I had the same, had my little lawn mowing business. It, which... it could be very lucrative because the, <laughs> yeah. over, the overhead, was, since I use our family's lawn Right, mower, right. It didn't cost anything. And then when I got a little bit older, I got a job as a delivery boy for the newspaper. Whoa. 
Me and too. Though this is this is eerily coincidental. Or I have same. I was a delivery boy for our local uh, newspaper, my neighborhood. My mine was the Los Angeles Mirror, which okay. no longer exists, but it was a morning paper, and so I would get up at about four thirty or five, and get on my bike and go five blocks over to where they had this little office, and we folded papers, put them on the bike, and delivered. I think about a hundred of them. And then I'd get back in time for get cleaned up and eat breakfast before going to school. So that that was uh, a fond memory of learning to be self-sufficient. Other activities that interested me then was uh, I was active in track and field. I was a cross-country runner. And I became interested through my father in the game of chess and joined uh, up with four or five uh, people that were several years older and uh, enjoyed competitive chess for several years. That's great. So do you live in the Palisades, Michael? I do. I've lived in the Palisades since the 1970s. We bought our home through a lot of hard efforts and we haven't moved since. Before that, we lived in West Los Angeles. Nice. And by the way, for those listening, we are broadcasting from the Pacific Palisades. And we're out right off, what street is, are we listening to these cars Sunset. pass by? Sunset Boulevard. So those that are listening are hearing cars passing by on Sunset Boulevard. And it's a rainy Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> to put some context on what we're doing today. So, all right, let's jump into how you got into real estate. Tell us about how you got started. Before real estate, Warren, my background, because I was uh, in business administration and I found I had a natural ability to do things well with analysis and business activity, my family had a, a drapery manufacturing firm, my wife's family, and I became part of that because I had the wider perspective that I business school graduate might have, we took a small family business and made it into the dominant force on the West Coast in making draperies and curtains wow. for mobile homes and travel trailers. Impressive. That's uh, awesome. It, 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 was, it was a lot of work, but it was very gratifying. Yeah. Made a lot of money, but had no fun whatsoever. Just <laughs> a lot of work. Yeah. Uh, so I retired from that after several years and we sold the business. And what got me into real estate was after I was retired raising, helping raise our son, I began to miss interaction with people in a general way. So we thought about what would be a good opportunity for me to be of service and real estate and travel agent were the two that we finally narrowed the world down to. It was a flip of a coin. Interesting. That uh, is what motivated me to go into real estate. Uh, what, and that's what I did before it. That's great. So, so have you always been with Coldwell Banker or did you start somewhere else? I started with the process of interviewing back up one step before I got started, the 
there's a several week period you have to wait to get a license. I hooked up with a broker and listened to literally hundreds of different sessions on real estate training to learn what you're supposed to do. I actually hung my license with a man named Bud Petrick after having interviewed with five local office managers and not finding anyone who was supportive of me doing business in a way that I felt most suitable. Mr. Petrick was wise enough and gracious enough to let me have my own reign and do what I thought was necessary. So we had a good run of it and then moved to a bigger office, which in turn was acquired by a major company, uh, the Prudential okay. Group. And so I migrated from Petrick and Associates to Prudential, which subsequently merged with the John Douglas Company because of financial <clears throat> challenges in the world. And as a result, we had the Prudential John Douglas Company, mm. which in turn was bought by Caldwell Banker. I got you. And we'll, and we'll get to, to the continued call, consolidation in this industry later in this podcast, but it's that's that's a great story. Okay, so that, I understand that. So tell me about, I'm always curious about, you know, the first sale, because I think it's like in anything, just like when I started the, the you know, uh, digs, you're really not in business per se until you have your first sale. So tell me about that. That's a good question. All I knew is I wanted to be of service. I got my license in the fall of uh, 1986, and I was I had no knowledge about the real estate field, whatever, excepting from having listened to all these hours of what you're supposed to do. The first client I had was a lady who was referred to me by a good friend of hers who knew I was fairly smart. And she was in a pickle because she needed to do a 1031 exchange a property identification. And she only had one more month left to do it. And nobody had helped her because they weren't really listening to what she was looking for. So once I learned what she was looking for, I made it a single-minded, that's all I did for about a week. And I came up with three properties that met her criteria. During the Christmas holiday week, we went and looked at two of them that she'd narrowed it down to, and ultimately made an offer on one of them, it was a duplex, made the offer the night of the big real estate holiday party. I left the party early so I could go write up the offer because time was of the essence. Had a sweet agent named Manny who worked with Prudential in West Los Angeles. I'd never sold anything. And here I was buying a, an investment property. <laughs> Thank goodness his integrity was as good as it was he understood that I didn't know a damn thing about contracts. <laughs> and so my first transaction was a major learning experience, climbed the learning curve real quick, and learned to be grateful for people help help you on the way yeah. up at the same time. So that was my, my first sale, and it was aligned, uh, aligned with my mission to be of service uh, to people, which 
is what drove me into real estate in the first place. And I love you keep using that as sort of a reference point, a frame of of reference, because I think that that tells, you know, really who you are, the character that you are and, and how that's, you know, going to market, you know, with that service mentality, which kind of goes into your tagline, which I love, by the way. Your tagline is, we haven't met our expectations until we have exceeded yours. Which, tell me about, did you come up with that? How, how did that come to be? My earlier one was uh, people kept asking me, why are you, how'd you get to be so successful so fast? It wasn't that fast. It was five very long, hard years. But as I analyzed it, I thought the simple answer was in one word. It was enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. So my, my slogan, if I guess we could call it, for many years was enthusiasm is a secret of success. We changed that, we meaning by then I had a team, to exceeding clients' expectations. Because back to my, my original, when my wife and I first were looking for our home, we went through three different real estate agents. And to me, it was very simple. You give someone a list of what you want, after having figured it out, they find what homes fit that, you buy it. Mm-hmm. And my list was only five things. We only had five criteria to find in a home. That's great. One after another agent failed to really listen yeah. to what these five things on the list meant. And finally, we met this guy who was the broker I was going to actually work first with, who honestly told us, our list was really very hard to find five out of five. We'd be lucky to find four. An average agent could probably find three if they were lucky. Mm -hmm. So then I really understood how difficult it it was. But our level of expectation, Warren, for many months was not met, much less exceeded. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that, that was one of the driving things my wife and I figured when I was deciding what to do with my new life, if I couldn't be better at service than those agents were that we'd worked with, I'd be amazed. I mean, just so exceeding clients' expectations uh, became the the norm wherever we could. And yeah, that's great. That's profound. So. And you hit hit on something, which I think is also one of your strong attributes, <clears throat> and that's you know the ability to listen. Because I think you're right. In this space, everyone's so fast and furious, chasing deals. You know, they don't listen. And and it goes in every industry. People, I I found, and even my own personal, you know, success has been, you know, finding ability to focus and listen. Because then you can truly be advisory. I think the, the, uh, in real estate at least, and maybe it's broader, there's an attachment to the outcome, Warren, that most agents understandably have. And because they are attached to the outcome, they're having a higher priority in their mind than fully, truly, deeply understanding what the client's needs are. And as a result of that, they don't ask enough questions or they don't go deep enough in the questions to understand, and as a result of that, they're not as successful as they easily could have been 
because they get in their own way. Yeah. The average real estate agent, do, do you have any idea, Warren, because you're working with a lot of real estate agents, what is the average number of sales of, of a real estate agent in your market area per year? In my market? In the whole west side and south bay, if you took all of the agents... And 100% all the of the population, right? 100% of the agent population. 100% of, of the agents. I would say one. Warren, I have to give you an A+. Plus. You are the first one in 10 years that I've asked that question of who actually knew the answer. Wow. Well, I'm I'm surprised that I actually got it. The public a absolutely the, right, but it, but I love it. The the public when I and, and I do seriously ask this question dozens of times a month because it's it is a relevance and to your question about it. The average person or citizen guesses between 5 and 7 and they think they think they're on the low side mm -hmm. because it just occurs to them. And then when I say guess again, they usually say, gosh, is it only three? Well, so... But it is one. So interesting. Then the reason I think I, I knew that answer sort of intuitively is because of this whole concept of the 80-20 rule, which, you know, I've been following and, and really it's really integrated in, in how my business was started and studying sort of the industry, you know, 20% of the agents are doing 80% of the transactions, right? It's probably more in these. It's, it's not exactly that, but that's close but enough. But it's a good rule, it's a right? It's a good rule of thumb. So, Pareto's principle works. Yeah. Yep. So yep. if you follow that sort of logic sort of downstream a bit, it, it'll lead you to, it's very, very few deals, you know, but anyway, I'm, I'm, Interesting. So, yeah. But to one. answer the question, uh, explaining why it is that agents don't necessarily listen as well or ask as deep questions, why they're attached to the outcome as much as they are, if the odds are they'll sell one house in a year, maybe two. If they sell three, they're way above average. The commissions are very high. Yeah. So it doesn't take three sales is a good income in the west side in a whole year so dan the the obvious to me uh, the answer to that question is they are attached to the outcome because they feel they need to get this buyer to buy something because right. that's what their need is so rather than thinking of the client and what they need maybe it'll take a year for them to find what would work but if the agents perceived need is to sell something this month, not this year. I think that accounts for, yeah. for some of it, at least. Yeah, agreed. But there's also, I've noted, a lot of um, opportunity for people to learn to have a more emotionally intelligent approach to relating to people. And if they don't ask sufficient questions, they don't really have a chance unless they're guessing or they make assumptions that everybody kind of has the same type of needs or they take literally what the client says their needs are without asking why is that important or what will this do for you that's great so edit that out so this ne this next question i want to ask you i think you've already answered it in a you know during our our time uh, already but um it, 
as you know, it's not easy to, to differentiate yourself in, in this industry. What advice would you give new agents just getting started in this business? I would give them three or four advices. I would say first, to meet people as much as possible. Do open houses, talk with people, let them know they're in the business, offer to be helpful wherever they could be useful. Doing so with a positive mental attitude, having a positive energy, being of service, a service attitude and mentality, I would highly advise someone to differentiate themselves from a, an emotional and energetic perspective. And from a practical uh, point of view, I would highly recommend that they immediately learn the real estate market, know the statistics in the area they choose to work in, become the expert in as short a period as they're able to. Uh, so they can be differentiated both energetically and by knowledge. That's great. That's great. So I want to go back to this because I think this will be fun uh, exercise for you. And I'm just curious to see because you've given me so many different sort of words that I would use to, to define what has made you successful. But what three words would you choose that would define your success? If you can only choose three words, what would those be? Service, energy, attitude. Perfect. Service because that's the underlying principle in the universe that makes things go around. What goes around comes around. If someone doesn't serve, then they're less likely to be served. So service as much as possible to those who are in need or who could benefit from what someone has that's rather to me obvious, but I think it's it's crucial for anyone for not just business, but in general daily living. Yeah, I could talk about that for quite a while in itself. Energy, if someone doesn't understand how the universe works on a basis of energy, not it's not a physical universe, it's one of energy. Most people still don't know that. Or if they do, it's only intellectual. But in fact, it's true. So the energy that one generates is extremely important to be mindful of in terms of, of um, being successful because people who have a low level of expectation, a low level of energy, victim mentality, and again, could talk for a long time about it, they're just not going to succeed because they're handicapping and putting roadblocks in their own mind. Yeah, self-limiting, yeah. So, and the third one, which is attitude, is to that directly related. Someone whose attitude is highly expectant of good, who are charitable-minded, who are generous at heart, compassionate, who have a an attitude that's based on honesty, transparency, good character, it will guarantee success simply by its presence. I love that. That was profound and I couldn't agree more. And like, that's what they should be teaching 
agents like before they do anything i know there's ethics and this and that but like it's really you know everyone's so focused on the periphery of how to be successful and what what you got to do and and there's foundational life elements that carry with you and if you just follow that compass like it'll get you to where you're going but you've got to really align with that foundational those foundational elements you know i recommend that it would be very useful would help all of us right michael it would <laughs> and if it could be brought into school curriculum yeah uh, it would help all of us in the future absolutely a lot more so people wouldn't have a scarcity mindset they'd have an abundance yeah mindset and it would be a win-win for everyone yeah love it so you've been very charitable in both your business and personal life tell us how you got involved with with being so charitable uh, in terms of charitable i've have a i've had a charitable attitude since high school when i uh, both experienced and observed other kids both being generous and kind as well as the opposite and so it helped me become more uh, become more charitably minded than i otherwise would have in, in terms of follow through we've contributed well over a million dollars from commissions earned to a wide range in in terms of charity in that regard i'm a great fan of local uh, causes and organizations that do well the community that i serve is a community that is the source of our real estate business so giving back only to me makes sense i was the, one of the originators of the street cleaning program in the palisades as an example it's great the city used to clean the streets here up until 15 years ago or so and due to budgetary reasons they stopped sending street sweepers and it, it didn't take long before this village uh, the sidewalks and the streets had stuff mm -hmm. so there was a program created by chrysalis which is a great organization by the way if you're not familiar with them they ex cons they give them a job training and they one of their main jobs is they go to areas and they clean they sweep and power wash and so forth so i became a major sponsor of that again giving back to the community it's common sense yeah to me but on a wide scale uh, education we support all the local schools any group that has good purpose so it's it it's a great deal of joy that we have uh, and most recently my favorite is uh, donors choose which i highly recommend if you're not familiar with it uh, they give millions of children school children around the country program aids resources and so forth that aren't able to be provided by the local schools anywhere in the country i mean almost everywhere has problems with that it's not just here so bill gates foundation is a major supporter of that group that's great i could give you lots of examples but that's it's giving back that that uh, prompts me to continue to circulate that way charitably that's great so let's talk about who has been your biggest influence and had the most impact in your career thus far? And it can be someone outside of real estate. It could be 
you know, a friend, it could be family. What, what do you think? The greatest influence has been my wife. How come? She has a heart of gold. She has a, an instinct in life. And she understands life principles to a level that most people haven't yet realized it can be done. And uh, her, her judgment is, is uh, highly reliable. So on a personal level, I'd say uh, she's been my greatest influence, personal life and business. And in business, uh, from the business angle, uh, Steve Schull in uh, real estate, he's a trainer. Uh, a lot of his thinking through the years I've enjoyed and benefited from. And uh, Bob Bolin, who was the leading agent in the world in Prudential for years, he and I have a very similar parallel path and a friendship that goes back decades. That's great. Are there any other top agents that you're like-minded with or that you you are inspired by? Or Bob Bolin is still an agent. He is, okay. Although he's in Andover in Massachusetts. It's not near here. There aren't a lot of agents who think the way we do. In our market area, there aren't, I don't know of very many that think in that way. Ron Wynn has an understanding of a tremendous depth uh, in real estate, very successful and a good friend. I'd have to think about that quite a bit to <laughs> determine. Yeah, I don't want to put you on the spot there, but uh, that, that's great. So, all right, let's, let's switch gears. Let's have some fun. And you're a fun guy, Michael. So tell us about some funny, can't believe it happened kind of stories that have happened in your illustrious career. There's got to be some, some fun stuff there. That's true. Uh, things that you couldn't believe could happen. In the last several months, uh, some examples. Uh, closed an escrow on one. Husband and wife were separating or had separated. We sold a property that they had owned and discovered the next day that the husband was not to be able to be reached because he was in Mexico. It turned out that he went to the bank where the money had been deposited from the proceeds, removed all of the money that was in the account, including the proceeds, mm -hmm. and with his new girlfriend, took off, leaving his about-to-be ex-wife in uh, a pickle. We've had another one which was really weird. People left the house. We told them it has to be in what we call broom clean condition. This house had an enormous amount of personal crap all over, <laughs> and they left all of it. I had to pay, go junk free for two huge dumpsters that it took to remove it all, several hundred dollars. So it was in got junk condition. The, it's good. <laughs> and, and the buyers, of course, they'd pull, you know, they were expecting to move in that day. No such luck. And then we had a seller. She, her head was somewhere else, and she thought, well, when the escrow closed, then you get yourself packed and you move, but you wait till you have your money. So the buyers came, and she was starting to pack. And it took her a whole week <laughs> to leave. With kind of embarrassing to us, and uh, I had to make good. Uh, didn't have to, but I paid for a couple of nights for uh, them uh, to uh, find a place to live. 
And generally, all the time we've observed in this last year, Warren, sellers who have a proclivity or tendency to not want to be fully upfront in the way of disclosing things, mm -hmm. often it jumps up to bite them in the most weird ways. The thing they fear most comes upon them. <laughs> the thing they're trying to hide comes to light. Yeah. The leak that they mentioned, oh, it had happened decade, long time ago, long time ago fixed, uh, just in passing, when it rained not too mm -hmm. long ago, and they called us and said, um, we just noticed, and this was after we'd explained to them in great painstaking detail the importance of being totally upfront with disclosures because you're exposed if you don't. So mm -hmm. they decided to be totally upfront. <laughs> Almost after the fact. Yeah. Th those are some of the can't believe stories that we've had. That's great. Looking for a personal stylist for your home? Check out Bow Concept. One of their design consultants can help you make the most out of your space. No request is too big or small for living, dining, sleeping, home office, and outdoor spaces. And check out their Southern California showrooms in Orange County and Costa Mesa and also in Los Angeles and La Brea. For more information, visit Bow Concept at bowconcept.com. Email info at bowconcept.la. So... Michael, the very first time I met you, I was really impressed with the depth of your market knowledge and insight. We've talked a bit about that today, but but let's let's go back because I, I think it's a common thread. The, the people that are very very successful in this industry, and you mentioned like a Ron Wynn and, and yourself, like you know they they really take the market knowledge aspect very seriously. They're they're really they, they're they have a sort of a Wall Street mentality where it's like. You really have to understand the inner workings of the of the market and you know the pricing and and all that stuff and and so to, to, have you always had an affinity for that or did you stumble upon like tell us why that became so important and such a part of how you go to market originally uh, i'm i'm a very cerebral thinker and i felt great comfort and security in knowing facts and understanding principles and discovering rules by which things worked and how life functions. So it's just an extension of that as to market knowledge, to be fully aware of as much as possible about the market, both micro, uh, local, as well as national, national mm -hmm. or global. Uh, also looking at market in context of history, uh, looking at broad trends of technology. They're, they're not independent, uh, they're related. Mm -hmm. So if that answers the question. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. And do you, do you think as a sort of an aside, because, you know, the world has changed and we're, you know, sort of we're consumer, you know, the consumers are never been more empowered and have access to data and research online, what have you, especially in the real estate industry. Do you think that's ch sort of changed the rules in terms of like, if you look at a listing and how the the pricing of the home comes to be, do you think, are you finding it more, they're more empowered and they're sort of telling you what the price will be versus relying on your 30 plus years of market intelligence and 
How is that? Has that become a constraint or is that? It's become a, both an extension of a challenge of education <laughs> to the consumer, which has always been necessary. Uh, people always think they know, or not, it's not fair. People often have thought yeah. that they know uh, how much their home is worth, for example. How do they know that? Well, because three doors down, he's asking a million and a half for his house, and mine's a little bit better than his, so mine's probably worth a million six. Not taking into consideration that the guy's house down the street is on the market for that, it hasn't sold, and value is not based on what a neighbor's asking. Mm -hmm. So that's always been, that's not new. What's new, Warren, is kind of obvious, what's new today is 80% of the people that I speak with about or counsel with about their home, and usually what they want to know is how much is my house worth, what do I need to get it sold, how long it will take, and what are you going to charge me? And that's, that's all. I, mean, right. I could do that on the phone. Yeah. don't need to take their time or mine to go see the house. But their thought is they already know what the house is worth, not just because of what the neighbor is asking or what they heard the house around them on the other side of the block sold for. It's very easy for them to go on Google or Zillow mm -hmm. or Redfin or Realtor.com or CoreLogic. Mm -hmm. or, or There's at least several yeah. sites that will tell you within about 10 seconds how much your home is worth. Yep. And if you look at two or three of them, well, then you've got a really good idea how much your home is worth. So when you call an agent, you already have a preconceived, fairly tight sense. So our job, my role, is educational from that perspective to explain why the algorithmic approach, at least in our market area, why it's highly unreliable. It's, yeah. ver it's very useful in the San Fernando Valley in a tract where there are dozens of homes that have sold in the last three or four months that are very similar. No question that Zillow's probably very close. Closer to the actual, yeah. Oh, very close. When Spencer, the president of Zillow, sold his own house up in Washington a year ago, his own, it was embarrassing, his own algorithm was off by about a million dollars on his own house. To the downside or the upside? It said his house was worth a million more than what it actually ended up <laughs> selling for. And so when we in our industry talked to the experts at Zillow, what happened? How could oh, that's you great. screw up? I didn't up? hear that story. Oh, it's true. Oh, that's great. And so the reason why, well, the algorithm didn't sufficiently take into consideration the fact that Spencer's property backed up to a major thoroughfare, mm -hmm. which, and it's also slightly irregular in shape. Well, an algorithm, a computer, it, it doesn't know yeah. anything about the land. All yeah. it knows is the square footage. Well, and I think to your point, this is why market knowledge and, and sort of this intelligence is more important now, even with all this data. Because, Vastly more. Because you've got to be able to navigate through the reams of data and the red fins and the realtor like to, to make sense of that now and say, okay, yes, that's what the prevailing maybe opinion is out there, but this is what the reality is, you know, here. And in the bo neighborhood. both on the buyer side as well as yeah. 
the sellers. The sellers have the preconceived idea, which has to be not disabused because that's not respectful. And I can't tell you how many listings I have not received or been hired to do because they didn't like my approach or my our team's answer uh, to their question. Though in retrospect, in most cases, we were found to have been much closer than the other agents yeah. were. But from a buyer standpoint as well, they think, because they have access, it used to be, we were the gatekeepers. Right. If you want to know anything about a house, it came through a real estate agent yep. with this big book. Yep. There wasn't any internet. And even when there was an internet, all of the data was kept so closely controlled, the consumer couldn't really find out much other than what's available for sale. Yeah. Now, it's almost embarrassing to the average agent. I was, I was in an open house not too long ago. Guy came in, he was in his late 30s probably, with an iPad. And he's holding his iPad to say, well, Mr. Edlin, how come they're asking this much for this house? Isn't, aren't you a bit over probably like 150000 too high? I said, well, how did you come to that conclusion? He says, well, it's right here. And he's got this analysis on some spreadsheet. He imported the data from somewhere. Very, very analytic thinker. And I said, you know, I really respect that. You're probably the most informed consumer I've ever met. Would you like to take the time to discuss these, though, and see where there's some assumptions that were made that might make this a little bit less reliable? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yes, I think yeah. the agent, if... Back to what I said earlier, if the agent doesn't really know the market, it's difficult for them to deal yep. with a modern consumer uh, due to technology. Yep. And if that and if the data is not transparent, you know, and we're not dealing in reality, we're not doing we're not being of service to anybody, sellers or buyers. Well, being of disservice. It's worse yeah. worse than not being of service. Yeah, you're right. And you're right. because the agents tend to get uh, commoditized by the process of the consumer they look at an agent as they're all the same so you've got an agent you've got a license what is it you put a sign up you put it in the MLS uh, they show the property a bunch of brokers come and look at it people give them an offer who you give it to and you counter and then you go into escrow it, that's all there is to it so if there's no differentiation in the consumer's mind their odds are against them that they'll get a really good agent because of so many agents out there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yep. So let's talk about about the sort of the industry now, the market rather. I mean, the good news is the, I mean, the markets that you serve are so exclusive here, like Pacific Palisades, Brentwood, Santa Monica, 90402. I mean, this, these areas on the west side are just have reached astronomical pricing and, you know, it's uh, just much like in the South Bay, Manhattan Beach, Hermosa right. Beach. Are we at the end of a real estate cycle here? What do you, what do you see? What's your crystal ball telling you? Uh, short answer is my crystal ball about three years ago broke. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping you would say that because crystal balls uh, are worthless. Well, actually, I prided myself that our team's approach to evaluation, Warren, was so good. For many years, we were within 5% of what a house would sell for. Wow. 98% of the time. Mm -hmm. it was, I mean, it was really good. Yeah. And I won't take your time to describe to you how we do it, but it's very intense 
and very comprehensive. That stopped being so accurate, not too many, I mean, some years ago. So seriously, we don't have a crystal ball, but we still use the same approach. We just tell people it, it, we're, we're right within 95%, not 98% of the time. Um, because accuracy is more difficult. So what's your approach? Tell us about your approach. The approach is I have three different people analyzing the theoretical value of property, and each one takes it from a different perspective based upon their role on the team and their expertise. So we then hash out, because we'll always come up with different numbers. I then want to know, okay, how come... What's the basis that you came up with that number? And how come you came up with that number? That's great. And here's my number. And with the process of discussing the, the differences, I can then sit down with an owner and say, with a fair degree of certainty, your house is going to sell between this and that. Uh, and, and we're usually pretty That's great. Pretty spot on. That's awesome. But, but uh, to answer your question about the market as a whole, independent of crystal ball, we have had a major shift. Cyclically, in our market area at least, we tend to have, going back 40 years, cycles that range from 8 to 10 years in amplitude. The last one was 2008. We are therefore now in the 11th year of what's typically an 8 to 10 year cycle. So because of extraneous events, which don't need to take your time here to go and discuss that have nothing to do with local real estate particularly, but because of those extraneous events, we don't know how long the cycle will continue before it starts going in the other direction. Yeah. But what I can say, having a statistical and analytic approach to this is We have two markets. Often I think people discuss the market as if it's an amorphous blob. (laughs) The the world market's different. The United States market's different. The Midwest market's different. The coastal markets are different. The high-end areas are different. Well said, yep. So these are all, when people ask me, how's the market? I know what they mean. Which market? But which market? Yeah. So when I get down to the granular level, the west side, which is the only market I really know, then I say, well, there's a few different markets in our market. Mm-hmm. First of all, it's very neighborhoody. The Palisades alone has 10 different neighborhoods. Santa Monica alone has six or seven very different neighborhoods. So. The question I always have to ask the asker, which market? Mm -hmm. Within each of those markets, there are different markets. The first differentiation is, are we talking about the higher end or the lower end? Mm -hmm. The difference is that the characteristics in this current time, at least in our area, are not the same. The market is defined as being in balance between buyers and sellers when there's about five months of inventory. Mm -hmm. What we look at is, and everybody points out, we've got about 
five months of inventory, four months of inventory, depending on what numbers you look at, based on current level of sales. So in theory, we're in a market that slightly still favors the seller, right? So if you take the median point of the market and look at just that above and those below separately, you find a very different picture. Yeah. Right now, it's about two months inventory mm -hmm. in the lower half of the market. That is a seller's market. Yeah. On the high end, it depends on which neighborhood, but you're between six and ten months of inventory depending on the price range. That is a buyer's market, not yeah. a seller's market. No, it's great. I think you, you illuminate sort of... There is no correct answer. It's it's so situational and so rel relative to the micro markets and even the, on a street level, the neighborhoods. And, and it, you know, talking about the real estate cycle, because I get this a lot too, you know, and they think, you know, people think I know just because, well, what we do, we, you know, that I have all these answers to the market and they'll ask me. And I agree, it's, it's you look at the history and, you know, eight to 10 years is, is the average cycle, but the market, this... Looking at the economy, which we're all, you know, real estate always leads and lags recessionary periods, right? You know, it's the first indicator to, to start it, and it's, it's the first indicator to, to know we're getting out of it, right? And, of course, we had the mortgage meltdown and all that. I just read something really interesting yesterday, so I want to ask you about. And this is the commercial real estate with all these big box retailers going out of business and downsizing. There's been, this year already, in the first two months of 2019, there's been 4,000 announced closures of big box retailers, stores nationwide. In 2017, there was, there was over 100 million square feet closed of, of commercial uh, retail space. Last year, which is a record, last year it doubled to like 252 or something. So we're at like two in the last two years. Or maybe my math is. The, I know the, the the stat is in the last two years, 2017, 2018. There's been 257 million square feet of commercial property, basically closed vacancies and like. So my question is, what happens to that real estate? Is that and it seems like we're not talking about that enough, and what how that trickles down. What do you, what are your thoughts on that? First of all, I'm not a student of the stats of the commercial world, though I'm certainly aware and I understand. Those, those square footages are not geographical limited either. Yeah. Uh, something Michigan or Miracle Mile, uh, different major cities, San Francisco, Boston, New York, they've all been suffering I have network meetings that I go to periodically with other agents and different cities. And this last year, we noted both in downtown Chicago and downtown San Francisco, uh, places that there were just too many mm -hmm. vacancies where there, there weren't and shouldn't be. But it, first of all, it's obvious to to any of us, the reason why is Amazon or other online purchasing yeah. the big box not able to adjust to it. So, uh, and in small town America, it's e equally an impact 
As a result, uh, we find a glut of commercial space. Yes, it affects the residential indirectly, but I think what you're going to see is, for example, you had a major shopping center in West LA that's been being repurposed. Yeah. So instead of retail, because they're all going to Century City to shop now, or Santa Monica, I forgot how many hundreds of thousands of square feet Google is a tenant of mm -hmm. this next season. So yeah. you have retail space being repurposed to augment a shortage of office space mm -hmm. for our labs. I don't know what Google's going to do there, uh, but they're using it. So the owners of the real estate will still have good income. If your question relating to real estate, not the businesses that went out of business. Yeah, 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 exactly. And uh, uh, the other ones in different contexts, I've heard of some that are being repurposed into condominiums. A lot of zoning and, and building code stuff obviously needs to be done. Some into uh, studio space, uh, work, art type mm -hmm. things. So there are yeah, a lot this of... Interesting, interesting. Dis I think it's something to to watch relative to the economy, relative to real estate, because all the wealth that that could be, you know, at stake in terms of the investors and what have you, and just, you know, where does it go and what happens? And, you know, they're going to repurpose it, but there's too much of it to repurpose, you know? But maybe, I, I hear maybe but then what you'll have, because a lot of those are structurally from the 50s and 60s and 70s. So you're, you're going to be finding a repurposing in a different way. You'll have buildings removed and something built in their place. You'll probably find a shopping center that gets demolished and you'll have a high-rise apartment building there instead because the needs of the economy will re dictate that. That makes sense. So, Michael, let's talk about marketing, my favorite topic you know, in this age of digital, you've always been a big supporter of hyper-local print, us being a, an example of that. What, tell me why. Why I'm a fan of marketing? Well, specifically, not, not necessarily marketing, but like when we first met and, you know, we discussed, you know, digs and what we were attempting to do and we were going to be, you know, a, a new venture here. You sort of immediately aligned to what the value was going to be relative to you and, and your business, you know, in a hyper-local sense. And, um, I believe in zigging, Warren, when other people zag is often the most intelligent. And when everybody says nobody reads anymore, I know that's not true. And so it seems an opportunity to me to respond by doing more of what they say nobody does. That's great. When, when I see people, granted, people don't read the newspaper. They don't take as much, there's less advertising and there's fewer, lower distribution. That doesn't mean that people don't read anymore. It just means that the daily newspaper that their parents used to read every day isn't what they read. So, and that's also not to say if you have a local organ that people don't read that at all. So my commitment is 
since I'm most of my business, if I'm hired to sell someone's property, it behooves me to give as much exposure to that property as I can. And the cost for putting it in something that's in print may be greater than a lot of agents can justify, and I respect that, and maybe they're right. Uh, they have more bottom line dollars. But since I have a fiduciary responsibility to the individual hired me, if I get just two or three or four people to consider a house that they yeah. wouldn't have otherwise, it may be cost me several hundred dollars worth of advertising space, but that's the same as paying a hundred and some odd dollars to get somebody to consider it. And then we get paid a lot of money. So I think the consumer's entitled to full value from a full service agent, which yeah. we, we try to be. Well, I love your zag versus zig comment because what I've come to find, you know, in this industry, and we've been doing this in, you know, within the digs world for nine years now, and agents tend to have a herd mentality when it comes to, to marketing, and they they end up doing what everyone else does, and therefore, you know, sort of unknowingly, they become a commodity, and sort of goes back to the 80-20 rule. And so, and it's funny, I spent... 14 years in the commercial printing industry prior to, to launching Digs in 2010. And, um, you know, so I have a heavy print background and I'm, I'm always amused when we talk marketing because I consider, you know, what we do, we're a marketing company, you know, that, that has a magazine. Right. And oftentimes in this digital world, I'm posed sort of the, 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 the statement like, you know, we don't do print anymore. Kind of like no one reads the daily. So... I ask, do you, do you do marketing? And no one's ever said no. So then we can talk, you know? We're, we're in a good sort of spot. Because if you look at it as this or that in this world, you, it, it's, you create a you know, fork in the road, that, and that's not the right question to ask. You know what I mean? I think it's short-sighted. Yeah. I'm, I'm always curious to get sort of, and you gave us a great zag versus zig, because I think, you know, in our industry, it's it's sort of simple in what we do and what you do, rather. And well, actually, we're in the same business, right? When, you know, because we're both trying to get the attention of local real estate consumers, and they're in a fixed geography, and there's the the economics of it are very simple. There's buyers and sellers. They're trying to do one or one of two things, right? And they live in a certain geographical area, so it gives us a great head start on okay, how do we get the attention of these people? Well, we got to, A, be in the neighborhoods and be local, and, and B, have a relevant conversation, you know? Right. It's not about stamp collect collecting. It's about real estate, you know? So let's, you know, so anyway, I can go, this is my sort of, I could go on, my fun zone, I could go on for, you know. I can tell. Till, till midnight. But I'll stop myself, because this podcast is not about me, Michael. But so let me ask you a question. Two pieces of advice that you would give your younger self. I'd advise my younger self to be of service as much as I possibly can and to read one book a month. Love it. It's great. Sage advice. Let's talk about the real estate industry for a moment. I mean, it's it's beyond being disrupted and it's getting it's only accelerating and I could talk ad nauseum because I, I love this stuff. I mean we talked about Spencer, the CEO of Zillow. He just stepped down a, a couple weeks ago. 
Zillow's going all in on the iBuyer model. They've purchased a mortgage company. They're getting closer and closer to the real estate transaction and becoming less reliant on, on advertising and lead gen. I just read this morning, Sotheby's, so make this maybe eight out of 10 CEOs running the biggest real estate companies and brokerages have changed hands in the last 12 months. So you've got all this shuffle at the top. Everyone's trying to figure out what's next, right? And then you got Compass, who's got SoftBank dollars to the tune of a billion or, or close to, and they're acquiring companies like no one's business. They just made another acquisition up north, right? Um, large. So this world has changed, and it's it's both sort of exciting and frightening um, at the same time. But I'd love to hear your sort of thirty-year. You've been, you know watching this in this doing this what does this all mean to you how do you how do you see all this what does it mean to me personally nothing <laughs> the, love that answer by the way the i'm i'm an independent i have a real estate broker's license uh, for more than 20 years 25 years i could be one of those companies should i choose at any time it's more practical for me to remain in place with a larger company as a broker for the, the strength and solidity that they may have, will have, in a market that is going to be going through changes again. I was with small company when it got bought by big company. Big company merged with another big company because they both had problems. And only because a bigger company, Coldwell Banker, who had financial resources, uh, to be able to keep it going made the transition work. Today, you've got a similar interesting situation because of SoftBank. Mm -hmm. Compass is approaching growth in the industry in a way that no large company ever has in the past because of their business model. Mm -hmm. So where does that lead? Uh, as you said, he bought uh, Pinnell up in Northern California or closed the deal this week, that gives them a control of most of the Bay Area real estate. Yeah. Their business model was to buy 20% market share or more in 20 the markets, 20 markets mm -hmm. the largest in the country. It appears that they're going to accomplish that. What does that mean for the industry? Well, for a lot of agents have been felt they benefited from this a lot of uh, i've heard from some agents they didn't didn't work it's not working out as they anticipated mm -hmm. but it won't change the course of history compass is going to continue to grow simply by virtue of their bankroll but what does that have to do with me i'm a local specialist in my neighborhood it doesn't matter what sign is on the building uh, it, it could be Holo Banker, it could be Compass. I'd still do the same things. The principles would be used in the same way. Yep. It's just that the name on the paperwork in the door would be a different one. Yeah, different logo. So <clears throat> not easy to answer the question to the industry, what does it mean? Or to the managers who are getting shuffled around. Uh, Colwell Banker, uh, as a case in point, it took them a year to figure out what Compass and other companies were doing based on technological innovations 
Cobalt Banker because it's got a bankroll that's it's a publicly held. Uh, Rheology owns it. Mm -hmm. uh, they had the resources, creative and financial, to redesign their entire system over the last several months. They've been experimenting with it, and now we're, it's being implemented here. It's an awesome, uh, vast step forward. It's giving all the tools that were always available, but never in a comprehensive, easy, plug-and-play way to use it. So while it may take a bigger company longer to adjust, if they've got the resources and the talent, adjust they will. Yeah. And so what does it mean? I think Cobalt Banker and Compass, uh, and obviously some other ones, will be giant survivors. Uh, because of different business models, they'll do things somewhat differently. But the bottom line to the agent, you still got to meet people. This is still a personal relationship business. You still have to know your market numbers. You still have to know how to solve problems or else you're useless. Yeah. Doesn't matter what the big company does or doesn't do, in my opinion. So, Michael, what, what's been the biggest change in the industry since you started? Well, Warren, the biggest change, I think, is simply wrapped up in the word technology. Uh, technology has made everything vastly more efficient, uh, much easier to process and complete, much more transparent to the consumer, and much lower in cost per output. So I think the biggest change conceptually lies in that. As a result, there's a greater awareness uh, sooner uh, by the consumer, much more efficiency in buyer's knowledge base expansion. And where it used to be real estate agents were required for any informational item, uh, today that function or that use of their resourcefulness uh, is not the value any longer. So that I think technology has been the biggest change. I think that's well said. So let's let's get to some closing thoughts. Let's try to find out a little bit more about you personally, Michael. So what? Give us some of your favorite books, or do you have a favorite book? Favorite book would be impossible. Favorite books, a lot of them. Some of them are on, because I do try to read one a month. There are some that are metaphysical, some that are inspirational, some that are real estate related, some that are financial management, some that are political. But for starters, uh, The Untethered Soul by a guy named Singer. Uh, it's a very uh, different take on approaching life. Power versus Force, written by David Hawkins. Very fascinating read on uh, energy. Never Split the Difference by Voss. It's a fabulous, uh, relatively recent book. And his approach to negotiations has been very useful in real estate training in the last year. Wayne Dyer has written a number of books that I thought were outstanding, in particular, The Shift and The Power of Intention. Uh, Dying to Be Me, written by Anita Murjani, who literally 
supposedly died and then didn't. Fascinating read. Uh, for Practical Application of E Squared and Thank and Grow Rich by a lady named Pam Grout. Very useful. Ferris. Tim Ferris has written two giant books. One of them's Tools of Titans. It's a great read. Keller, from Keller Williams, has written a Bible, a millionaire real estate agent. If somebody wants to develop their career, he gives a blueprint. And the one thing it was his other book that's just great. Bob Bolin wrote a book called Clarity, which lays out in a very simple way how to do anything in real estate. Follow his principles and you can't not succeed. Uh, Ruiz, written a lot of great books. Uh, the Four Agreements is the best well-known one. Good Life Lessons. Richest Man in Babylon. Another great book in terms of use and growing of capital. Stephen Covey, Seven Habits, mm -hmm. and The Eighth Habits, another one he wrote. Very good guidelines. The Platinum Rule. Most people know about the Golden Rule. You know what the Platinum Rule is? No. It's to do unto others, but not the way that you would want done. You do unto others the way they would want it done. Got it. Very different. Love it. Yeah. Uh, Go-Givers is a great book, instead of getting. A lot of materials put out by Jim Rohn, very useful life lessons and real estate useful. Earl Nightingale, Brian Tracy, Zig Ziglar. Mm -hmm. uh, many trainers in recent years uh, have been very useful. So favorite books, uh, that's amongst. So favorite books is a separate podcast, it sounds like. Because we could go on. This is great. You could. Deep Dive would do some cliff notes on all this stuff. It, be it, valuable. Podcast, uh, Tim Ferriss has a great weekly one. And uh, Tom Ferry is doing a great job, I think, in the real estate field. Everybody should be listening to his podcast. And if somebody wants to read a lot of books in brief, there's a, an app called Blinkist, which gives uh, summaries uh, books. They're either you can read it or you can pay a little bit more and get an audio version. And it's a good way of reading literally five or six books in a day. Wow, that's great. In, in the Cliff Notes version. Do you have a favorite business leader? Favorite business leader, I'd say, would be Bob Bolin. Bob Bolin, Bob Bolin, was, and is one of the most innovative, brilliant minds in the world of business that I've ever personally known. He develops concepts into reality that are seeking to fulfill a niche that's just in its infancy. He was the one responsible back in the 70s for the certification of, of beef in different grades. Uh, he created the system. He proved very uh, successful in figuring out a system of our methodology of listing and selling real estate that brought him to being the number one prudential agent for many years in the world. He has a mind uh, that's incredibly resourceful and also 
he he reads probably two books a day. I would, I, I he'd, I'd never seen anybody read as fast as he does, <laughs> and he retains and can assimilate it and put it together with other ideas. So that that's why he comes. He's only written one book himself called Clarity. Good deal. So, all right, favorite vacation spot? Where do you go? Where do you, where's your spot? You and your wife. Well, spot, the, my favorite vacation is to have time with our son and grandkids. It doesn't matter where. Where? It, That's the, the spot. The spot is with them. So <laughs> it. we'll bring them out uh, here for a month at a time, and we'll enjoy their company uh, constantly while they're here, or will they live in Arizona, so we'll drive there and spend a few days at a time. That isn't a spot. <laughs> uh, I don't vacation in the in the way that most people do because I have so much fun doing what I'm doing. Doing what you here do that I don't have any need to get away from it. That's great. Well, Michael, I want to thank you so much for your time and and um, sharing these great stories. Your uh, what you've done is remarkable, and I have great respect for you and what you do and who you are. And uh, thank you so much for your time and for sharing with with me and our audience. I thank you for the opportunity. It's a pleasure being here. And that wraps up this episode. Thank you for tuning in and we hope you found some value. Please share, subscribe, and leave a review. Find us on iTunes and your favorite podcast provider. Until next time. <laughs>